On September 22, 1862, President Abraham Lincoln declared this proclamation. He said, On the first day of January in the year of our Lord, 1,863, all persons held as slaves within any state or designated part of a state shall be then, thenceforward, and forever free. Booker T. Washington was nine when news of the Emancipation Proclamation reached his plantation in South, southern Virginia. And he said this, he wrote this in his autobiography, the most distinct thing that I now recall in connection with the scene was that some man who seemed to be a stranger, United States officer, I presume, made a little speech and then read a rather long paper, the Emancipation Proclamation, I think. After the reading, we were told that we were all free and could go when and where we pleased. My mother, who was standing by my side, leaned over and kissed her children while tears of joy ran down her cheeks. She explained to us what it all meant, that this was the day for which she had been so long praying, but fearing that she would never live to see. In time, the news swept across the nation. It took a little bit to get through the rest of the South. But this is what he continued to explain. He said, The wild rejoicing on the part of the emancipated colored people lasted but for a brief period, for I noticed that by the time they returned to their cabins, there was a change in their feelings. The great responsibility of being free of having charge of themselves, of having to think and plan for themselves and their children, seemed to take possession of them. It was very much like suddenly turning a youth of 10 or 12 years out into the world to provide for himself. In a few hours, the great questions with which the Anglo-Saxon race had been grappling for centuries had been thrown upon these people to be solved. These are questions of a home, a living, the rearing of children, education, citizenship, and the establishment and support of churches. Was it any wonder that within a few hours the wild rejoicing ceased and a feeling of deep gloom seemed to pervade the slave quarters? To some it seemed that now that they were in actual possession of it, freedom was a more serious thing than they had expected to find it. After some brief celebration, after the Emancipation Proclamation, most of the slaves, former slaves, returned to the fields to continue their former lives. Even though officially they were free, in principle they were free, functionally, they went right back to the life they had known. In a practical sense, little had changed in their lives. The legal freedom simply seemed to present an opportunity for them. An opportunity out of which they didn't yet live, most of them. Turning their legal status into actual experience would require inward transformation. Those who found the challenge of that too daunting <laughs> reverted back 
quite easily to the safe, comfortable, controlled environment of the life they already knew. The life of living like a slave. Now this may seem sort of foolish from our perspective, from the perspective of those who've never been slaves, but I submit that the majority of Christians choose slavery over freedom most days. The majority of Christians choose slavery over freedom most of the time. Even though we've been set free, to live like we've been set free does not come all that easily or all that naturally. And here's the reason. The reason is it's a process that must happen from the inside out. It must happen supernaturally through the work of God's Spirit making us new. It won't work any other way. It's the struggle. It's the struggle to live out of this newfound freedom, this new proclamation, this legal status that we have in Christ. It's the struggle to live out of that new freedom that Paul addresses in these chapters. Chapter 6 through 8 of Romans is meant to answer those kinds of questions about that struggle of living out of the the new status of having everything in Christ and yet still struggling with the slavery. And Paul has, in Romans, up to this point in Romans 6, for five chapters, he's been explaining the basics of the gospel. He's been explaining in lots of different ways what goes on to get us to this point where we can know that there's a new status in Christ. And he explains the basics of the gospel. And this is how one preacher, Tim Keller, this is how he says it in six words. Salvation is received and not achieved. Salvation is received and not achieved. This is a revolutionary idea. The idea that what we have in Christ is something that you and I cannot deserve. You can't be good enough. You can't be smart enough. You can't be rich enough. You can't be safe enough. You can't be blank enough to actually have a status of being in Christ of your own work. It won't happen. Infinitely, it will be a failure. And so the truth that he's communicating to us in the first five chapters of Romans is that salvation is something we receive that we do not achieve. And so that that makes us ask questions like, well, well, if that's the case, then who cares what you do? (laughs) I mean, if that's the case, that we receive that salvation, then just go right on sinning. Do whatever you like. If, If grace is absolutely free, those are the kinds of things that the opponents of Paul and and the pretend objector at the beginning of verse one in chapter six is asking. There were some in Paul's day who were asking, how can that be that it's, that it's free? Salvation can't just be given to somebody. Well, Paul is saying, well, actually, it has to be. <laughs> it won't work any other way. And so that's the question that comes in here at uh, verse one that we'll answer in just a second. I want you to think about this as the, as the gist of today, the big idea. We have this in your study notes there, I believe toward the bottom-ish. Yeah, the ongoing struggle 
The ongoing struggle for Christians is to understand that we are saved not just from the penalty of sin in principle. That's one through seven. That's the first part of what we're talking about today. The penalty of sin in principle that we are saved from. Not just from that, but also the power of sin in practice. The ongoing struggle for Christians is to understand that we are saved not just from the penalty of sin in principle, but also from the power of sin in practice. But also from the power of sin in practice, but also from the power of sin in practice. Jump in at verse 1. This is where justification begins to meet sanctification for uh, the Bible nerds among us. This is where justification begins to meet sanctification in Romans 5 to 6. He says this in the principle of freedom, verse 1. What shall we say then? This is Paul asking a question on behalf of the objector. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? Paul is interacting with this pretend objector here. He's asking a rhetorical question and he says, should we just continue in sin so the grace can increase? He's asking it rhetorically, by the way, on behalf of those who accused him of preaching an easy gospel, a free grace gospel. Those who are sort of worried that if you preach a free grace gospel, then, then it's going to create more problems than it solves because people are just going to go do what they want. But Paul says, no, 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 you don't get it. That's not how this works. Let me, let me show you how this works. He says, by no means, that's not how that works. Verse 2 is a really strong term there, by no means. It's like saying it can't even possibly exist that way. How can we, verse 2, who died to sin still live in it? Paul is saying you used to sort of be alive in a sense because of your sin. At least you thought it made you alive. But it actually made you spiritually dead. And now he says, now that you are in Christ, now that you have the riches of Christ, his life lived for you, then you are dead. You are dead to sin because you can't still live in it. He says this, he explains this in verse 3. His concept is about his identifying us with Christ. We are identified with Christ, fully identified in his baptism, burial, death, resurrection. That's what he begins to explain starting at verse 3. He says, do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ were baptized into his death? We're now identified with Christ. Your old self died when Christ died. Here's how it happens, verse 4. We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism. He uses this picture of baptism to describe this new identification with Christ. And he says, we were buried with him by baptism into death in order that, so that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. That in order that, that so that, goes with the end of the verse there. All this happens, identification with Christ, dying to the old self, dying to sin. That happens for the purpose of, it says, new life. We too might walk in newness of life. Don't miss that particular piece. It's important to know that our identification, being fully identified with Christ, is something that has a purpose and a reason to it. He's, he's hinting at the practice, but we're still in the principle here in these verses. Look at verse 5. He says, and he adds this part about resurrection here. If we've been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. It's something that we died to. It's something we're going to be born again to. We've been born again once and we're going to be raised to new life again in the final day. 
in a resurrection like his. We know, verse 6, that's definitive language, we know. We're going to come back to this head thing because it's a mindset. We know that our old self was crucified. He's sort of encapsulating the whole, the whole argument here in these verses. We know that our old self was crucified with him. That's a cool way of saying it. You were crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing. The KJV says, in order that the body of sin might be destroyed. <laughs> it's a very definitive way to talk about it. So that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For the one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, at this point, it's really easy to say, but, <laughs> but I, don't, I don't feel like I'm dead to sin. I mean, it's really easy at this point to say, I, I, don't, I don't feel like I'm free from sin. It's easy to think on your life and go, I, I know I struggle with, with this and, and with this. I'm, I'm not free. Are you feeling free? I mean, I hope so. Because that means you're on the right trajectory. Look what he says about living out the practice of freedom. That's where he picks this up in verse 11. We talked about the principle. Now we're going to talk about the practice of it. Because if you, if you sense, I don't yet feel totally free from sin. Well, that's, that's interesting because congratulations, you're like every other Christian who's ever lived in the already and the not yet. There's this struggle going on. So he speaks of the practice of freedom and he's hinting at where he's going to head through the rest of Romans 6 through 8. By the way, I want to point out something interesting before we jump into verse 11. The word spirit is in our series title, In Christ, How the Spirit Transforms. And we'll get to Holy Spirit a lot more than we are today. The reason that spirit isn't talked about much, in fact, it's talked about one time in Romans 6 and 7 and then 22 times, I think it's 22, in Romans 8. He's sort of setting it up so that, so that those who are reading Romans 6 through 8 are reading 6 and 7 and identifying with this struggle of the Spirit not yet transforming me as I want to, as I need to, as God made me to be. That's, that's what the struggle of the Christian life is like. And, and if you're feeling those pangs of, I want to be more like Christ, I want to defeat sin, I want to do what's good and right, then you're smack dab in the middle of Romans 6 and 7. And that's a good sign for you. So look at verse 11. This is where he begins to speak of the practice of freedom. He says, so because of the principle I've just told you about, so you also must consider yourselves. You must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. This verse is an important sort of summary verse for where we're headed here. So press pause for just a second. I want you to consider the word consider. Circle that, underline, highlight. Look at that word for a second here. Consider is an important word for us understanding how principle becomes practice. He says you must count yourselves, some versions say, you must reckon yourselves in your mind. That's where you consider. You consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Consider is a word that requires having a certain mindset about something. In fact, it's an accounting word. It's like saying you must account for yourself in this way. You must think about yourself in that way. You must put into your account, the account of your life, this truth that you are dead to sin and alive to Christ. That's how the change begins to happen. The mindset is dead to sin 
alive to God. You can't, you can't live out of the principle unless you understand the principle. You, you, you have to know what you have in Christ and what that means about who you are before the Spirit can do real work in your heart and in your life. If you don't get that identification piece, he says, if you don't consider yourself that way, then the rest that I'm going to tell you in chapter 8 and following is not going to stick. You've got to get that piece right. This is who you are now. That's what he's saying when he uses this word consider. I'm not just making this up. It's all over Scripture. Romans 9, 8 says, It is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise who are considered as righteous, considered his offspring. Romans 4, in a bunch of places, talks about the, the time when Abraham was, uh, was faithful to God and God counted it. That's the same word as considered here. He considered it as righteousness. 2 Corinthians 5, 19 is a cool verse. It says, In Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses, not considering their sins against them. So Paul says you must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Colossians 3, 1-2 is a cool verse. You want to look this up. Colossians 3, 1-2 sort of parallels these ideas in Romans 6-8 through and, and encapsulates them in about five or six verses there. Colossians 3, 1-2 says it this way. If then you have been raised with Christ, then it says seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God and set your mind. Seek the things. Set your mind. They're parallel kinds of ideas there and they're intentional this isn't something that just happens your, your mind is set on something by your intention you seek something intentionally it doesn't just happen to us i think we have this ridiculous idea i'm gonna say ridiculous because i think it's ridiculous that somehow growth in the spirit is something we just sit around for Jesus, make me good. Set your mind on the Spirit. Seek the things. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on the earth. In other words, count yourselves, consider yourselves dead to sin. Seek the things above. Romans 6, 11 is where we're sort of camping out here for a second. I want to show you a cool, a cool version of 6, 11 that the message translates. It says it a little differently. It says, from now on, think of it this way. <laughs> Sin speaks a dead language. Like in The Godfather, when he says to the older brother, he says, you're dead to me. That's the old way. You're dead to me. From now on, think of it this way. Sin speaks a language that is dead to you, that means nothing to you. God speaks your mother tongue and you hang on every word. You are dead to sin and alive to God. That's what Jesus did. So when God speaks to you and your heart goes, yes, and you end up wanting what is good and what is right so that the members of your body are used as a slave of righteousness, that's an indication that you are a child of God. That's where we're headed. Let's keep going. Verse 12. I need to keep trucking here says, let not sin, therefore, let not sin, therefore, reign in your mortal body. As a result of this truth of being identified with Christ, don't let it reign in your mortal body, in your dead body. Don't let it get a vote in your thinking so that you obey its 
passions, because that's what will happen. Now, this word for passions is a, is a cool word here. It actually means something like over-desires. It doesn't just mean like a, a desire in, in general terms. A desire in general terms is a good thing. God gave us those desires. This is an, this is an over-desire. This is a desire that becomes an ultimate thing, that becomes, in a sense, a lord of one's life. C.S. Lewis says it this way. If you're taking notes, this would be cool to write down. This is a classic C.S. Lewis way of thinking. He says, sin is taking a good thing and making it an ultimate thing. Sin is taking something that's good and making it ultimate. At that point, it's become an idol if that good thing is not Christ. So sin is taking a good thing and making it this passion word, this over-desire. This is why you cannot let sin get a vote. You let, you let sin get a vote too much is what he's saying. That's when we, when we give ourselves to the work of sin. He says, don't present. That word there, present, is like saying don't offer. Don't offer your members, your body, your flesh. Don't present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who've been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. So, so what we do when we give ourselves to this false way of thinking as if we were still slaves is our body, our flesh, becomes members of unrighteousness. They're used for the purposes of the sin in the heart that comes out in our life as opposed to the reason He created us in the first place. He saved us for the purpose of our bodies becoming slaves, instruments of His goodness and His righteousness. Such a cool phrase there in verse 13. Verse 14 says, If you do that, sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law but under grace. And in 15, he restates just a smidge differently that same question he asked in verse 1. You'll see that there, verse 1 and 15. He says, What then? Are we to sin because we are not under law but under grace? By no means. Do you not know that if you present, if you offer yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness? Now, something to remember when he's talking about slavery here, is a bit different than what we talked about with slavery at the beginning. What we know as slavery in the United States is something, number one, that is race-based, and number two, it's for life. We could put some other things on that too, but we typically think of slavery as something that's race-based and for life. And what he's talking about here is something a little bit different. It would be common, we talked about this a couple times in the last few weeks, it would be common for someone who... Uh, owed a debt to somebody to to go into temporary servitude, temporary slavery with someone as a master to pay off that debt that they that they didn't have money for. So for a definite period of time, someone would offer themselves to a master. Paul is saying that's what we do when we don't consider ourselves based in the truth of who God says we are, as identified with Christ, riches with Christ in His glory is who we are. And he says when we we offer ourselves as an instrument of unrighteousness, we are under it as our master. 
It's a cool picture to describe it. Look at verses 17 and 18. <laughs> he says, but. But's a great word sometimes in Scripture. But. Thanks be to God that you who once were slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart because that's where it starts. From the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed and having been set free from sin have become... I want you to circle, underline, highlight this phrase because this is who you are. You've become slaves of righteousness. You'd offered, you've offered all of the parts of your body, all of your life's resources to God under Him as Master. Which means, friends, that we have become perfectly free slaves. Perfectly free slaves. Perfectly so because Christ's perfect life acts as a substitute for what is lacking in ours. Free because when He came to live His life for us, the power of sin was broken and we are now fully identified with Him. (laughs) Enslaved now because as the presence of His Spirit in us animates us and makes us alive. We experience the joy that can only happen when God makes you alive. The joy of being used as a slave of goodness. How often we have used our lives, we have given ourselves to be a slave of things that, that, that frankly are just about us. They're just about us. Not one of us in this room doesn't personally identify with that kind of experience of using our life as a slave of unrighteousness for our own purposes. But, but what Paul is saying is that when the Spirit makes you alive, you become a slave of righteousness. If you have this, this sort of angst in you, when you see the sin in your life and you want to do what's good and right and, and you grieve over that and you, and you say to yourself because of God in you, you say, I, I want to do what's good and what's right because I love you, Jesus, and, and nothing else makes me alive. When you say that, glory to God because it's a sign that you are on the right trajectory to become the man or the woman God made you to be. Here's the truth of the matter for us oftentimes, especially early on in our Christian walk. When we begin following Jesus, we don't really know enough, frankly. We just don't know enough about who we really are and what we really have. We know enough to commit to Jesus. We can have enough faith to say, I know Jesus loves me. He died for me. I want to follow him. Yes. But, but all of the implications of that, that principle becoming practice is a different thing. It's a whole 
new animal. And, and, and when we follow Christ, what we continue to learn is that we have followed Him to His cross. The life of Jesus is replicated in every true believer, in every true son or daughter of Jesus. His life is mirrored in us. Because the truth is that Christ didn't save us easily, safely. Oftentimes, I think we have this idea that we can follow Christ and just sort of tack him on to our existing lives. Hey, Jesus, here are my plans. Come along. That's not what Jesus wants to do. That's not, that's not the reason that Christ said to his disciples when he left, it's better that I leave. He said that because the Holy Spirit is going to be the one that, that takes that message of who Jesus is and implants it in people and makes them alive. You see, what Jesus came to do was a far more radical and far more, uh, at times, difficult thing than we ever thought it would be in the first place. C.S. Lewis has a fantastic way of saying this. fantastic way of communicating the truth that this is this Christian life sometimes is considerably harder than we ever imagined. But it's hard because it's good. Here's what he says. He says, imagine yourself as a living house. God comes in to rebuild that house. At first, perhaps, you can understand what he's doing. He is getting the drains right and stopping the leaks in the roof and so on. You knew that these jobs needed doing. And so you are not surprised. But presently, he starts knocking the house about in a way that hurts abominably and doesn't seem to make any sense. What on earth is he up to? The explanation is that he is building quite a different house from the one you thought of, throwing out a new wing here, putting on an extra floor there, running up towers, making courtyards. You thought you were being made into a decent little cottage. But he is building a palace and he intends to live there. The work God has for our lives is infinitely beyond our greatest thoughts. It's a much bigger project than we could ever imagine when we give ourselves to Christ. Jesus Christ, through the Spirit, wants to live in your heart and in your life in a way that makes us love the good. That makes us want to give everything we possibly can to Him as a slave of righteousness under the mastery of Jesus Christ because He's the only one, only one who's worthy of it. Nothing else to which you can give your life and your heart is, is infinitely as worthy as Jesus Christ. 
So say to everything else, you're dead to me. You're dead to me. That slavery to security, safety, that, that slavery to self-aggrandizement, that slavery to anything that is infinitely less worthy of worship than Jesus. Look at it and say, you're, you're dead to me. Then, then the Spirit can come in and reside and change. Then He can begin to transform you. Let's pray.